Well, good morning, Hope Fellowship. How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, well, some are doing better than others, it sounds. Well, today we're starting a new series in the book of Malachi, and uh, it's my guess that many of us have not ever heard a sermon series on Malachi, so this is going to be a treat for us. Malachi is a prophetic book. It's the last book of the Old Testament, if you have your Bibles there. And it's, while short, it packs a powerful punch, like most prophetic books, but it's very relevant for us today, as we'll see. So if you could, turn in your Bibles to Malachi 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 5 today. This is the word of the Lord for us. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is God's word to us. You may sit down and let us pray as we come to his word. Father in heaven, we need your help as we seek to understand your word. We want to be shaped by it. We want to have our view of you shaped by your word, not by our own opinion. And so, Lord, by your spirit, would you use this word to change us today? Would you help us to receive it humbly as if from your very mouth? We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jared mentioned this in his prayer, but last Monday... There was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria. And that major earthquake was followed by hundreds of other earthquakes, leaving, at last count this morning, over 33,000 people dead. And amidst that kind of catastrophic destruction and unimaginable hurt, Many of us wonder, well, where was God when something like that happened? Where's God when these catastrophic things happen? When we go a little bit closer, maybe to our own nation, maybe not to the catastrophic level of like an earthquake, we think about our own country. We think about some of the instability that we see in our political system. Both parties are at high levels of tension and mistrust. Don't need to convince you of that. We have threats from the outside, from China, and balloons they're sending over our country. Threats from inside that are coming from many different directions. And in this kind of situation, when we feel that kind of unsettledness, we think, well, God, where are you? 
How are you showing that you love us? And as we get the circle even closer, more, a little more personal, think about the last three years. Almost three years ago, every single one of us entered into a trial we never asked for. It's that trial of COVID. And it affected every single one of us in different ways. And many of us, even right now, I know as I look out amongst the congregation, many of us are dealing with very deep, dark trials, some real difficulties, trying to figure out, Lord, where are you in this? And so when we think of our world and we think of the circumstances of our life, when we think of the trials, of the disappointments, of the disillusionments that this world brings, a natural question for us is, God, where are you? How do we know that you love us? It's easy to place the blame upon God when we think about all of these things. And as we turn to the book of Malachi today, God's people were struggling much like we do today. They were looking around at their circumstances and they were saying, God, how do we know that you love us? And today the Lord will give us his answer, but it's an answer that comes in a way that we may not expect. So to give you some context for the book of Malachi, we're just kind of starting in here, so we need to know what's going on and what's happening with God's people. Well, we're about 460 years before Christ has come. And at this point in uh, God's people's history, in Israel's history, they had come back from a 70-year exile in Babylon. If you remember, they were sent into exile because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry. But God had graciously sent them back. You can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah, what was going on. But when they came back, life wasn't quite what they had hoped for. The temple had been rebuilt, but it had been rebuilt not to its former glory. It was much inferior God's promises seemed to not be coming true in the land. Their enemies were prospering. And as God's people considered all of these things, their worship of Yahweh became half-hearted at best. They weren't giving God their best. They were giving him the leftovers of their worship. They were going through the motions And it's in this moment that God sends his prophet Malachi to speak to them. And that's what we're going to look at today. And so for us today, what is the big picture that God is showing us through Malachi? It is this. It's that God reveals his greatness by reminding us of his unconditional love while displaying his wrath. God reminds us or reveals his greatness by reminding us of his unconditional love by displaying his wrath. Now, before we get into the text, it's important to know just a little bit about the structure of the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is centered around six what are called rhetorical disputations. And according to one scholar, Douglas Stewart, there is, uh, there's four traits to these disputations that Malachi has here. First, there is an assertion, normally made by God, followed by a question, normally by Israel. Then there's a response to that question, 
and then an implication. So there's an assertion, a question, a response, and an implication. And so we have six of these throughout the book of Malachi, and today we're gonna go through the very first one, this first disputation, as it's called. And in this first disputation, the following main points for us emerge out of the theme, which, to remind you, it's a little bit of a mouthful, so I'll say it one more time, that God reveals his greatness by reminding us of his unconditional love while displaying his wrath. Two or three main points emerge out of that. First, to, we must remember God's unconditional love through his word. We see that in verses one and the beginning of verse two. And second, remember God's unconditional love through his wrath. We see that in verses two to four. And then finally, praise God's greatness, which is on display through his love and through his wrath. You see that in verse five. So first, remember God's unconditional love through his word. All of us are what we could call leaky vessels when it comes to the truth, are we not? How often is it that we forget what God has done? How often we forget his grace toward us? And this has been true throughout all of history, even back then. So what a gracious thing it was for God to send his prophet Malachi to his people, to send this message to his people. So here we have in verse one, if you look at it, an expression of God's love. Here's what it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's very simple. The Lord is addressing his people directly. He wants them to know where they stand with him. He loves them too much to act without revealing his plans by the prophet Malachi. But before he highlights their sinful actions, which will be very soon, and there were many sinful actions, as we'll find out, he wants them to remember his love for them. So look at the beginning of verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. You know, back in college, I played basketball, and whenever our team would lose, our coach would have these late night sessions of re-watching the entire game, the very same night that we lost. We'd re-watch that game as a team play by play, and we would go over every single play we did wrong. And I tell you what, when you knew you had done something wrong and that video is about to show what you did wrong, the anxiety would rise. <laughs> Gotta like, oh no, I know what I did on this one. And some of these sessions would, would end, uh, go all the way through midnight and we would be kind of hit with all the things that we did wrong. Well, in the book of Malachi, the Lord, in a much greater way than my college coach once did, he, he's about to sit down with his team, with Israel, to point out all that they're doing wrong. We're gonna get to that soon. How they're disobeying him, how they are breaking his covenant on so many levels. But before he points out their errors, he wants them to know how much he loves them. He wants them to know their place in the team. And Hope Fellowship, I wonder this morning if you need that simple reminder. 
if you need that reminder as God's new covenant people that God loves you. Maybe you know everything you're doing wrong right now. Maybe you know what God would point out in your life. But you need that simple reminder this morning that that he says right here to, to Israel, I have loved you. Just take that in for a moment. He has loved you. If you know and love Jesus Christ, if, he, if you have been rescued by him, he loves you. Not because of anything that you have done. Not because of, uh, he saw like how much you would add to his team. He loves you because he loves you. He's, he's put his love upon you through Jesus Christ. So no matter what you might be facing today, no matter what circumstances you're going through, remember, if you are Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, God has loved you. And we see that through his word. Well, that declaration from the Lord is not enough for Israel. They're not buying it. Their present circumstances tell them otherwise. Their enemies are winning. Their glory as a nation is nothing. They are dissatisfied. And so they question God's declaration. And that brings us to the second point as we see God revealing his greatness to us. And that's to remember God's unconditional love by his display of wrath. So listen to Israel's pushback in verse two and then we'll we'll hear God's response. This is the Lord how have you, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, at first glance, this is a bit surprising. If, if you were to ask, if I was going to ask Sarah, like, if she was going to say, well, uh, how have you loved me, Eric? I wouldn't just say, well, I hate all these other people. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not like a real convincing argument for how much I love her. And because that's the case, we need to take a step back and realize that what God is saying here is a little different than what we're used to in terms of love and hate and relationships. God is talking about his covenants with his people. He's, he's, remembering, he's reminding Israel their founding as a nation. He's drawing them back all the way to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. If you remember, back in Genesis, Rebecca was gonna have a baby, she was having twins. She was having a struggle there, and the Lord appeared to her in, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 25, in verse 23, he said, the Lord said this to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you, they shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So back here in Malachi, it's as if God is saying, you wanna know how I have loved you, Israel? You want, you want proof of that? Think about why you are my people in the first place. It wasn't because of your goodness or your moral uprightness or because of your standing. You were the younger. This was before they were born, but it's because I chose to love you. 
Even more than that, God is saying to Israel that they can know that he loves them by looking at the difference between how he has treated them and their fate and how he has treated Edom and their fate. Remember, Edom is another name for Esau. It's the nation that came out of Esau. So what is Edom's fate? Well, it's chilling. We read about it in verses three to four. He says, I have laid waste his hill country and I have left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So what's the Lord doing here? What is he saying? Well, here God is showing his people what a vast difference, once again, there is between them, the nation that he loves, Israel, and the nation he has not chosen, Edom, which he hates. He doesn't have a covenant with them. To Israel, the one he loves, he has given his favor. He has given them second chances. He has given them promises, a covenant. He has made them a people and with a place, and he has given them opportunities to repent and to rebuild. But to the one he hates, to the one he has not chosen, to Edom, they will only receive his wrath and his judgment. They will not get another second chance. They will not be able to flourish because God's hand is against them. He's the Lord of hosts. He's fighting against this people. But it begs the question, why was his wrath so strong? Why was his judgment so intense towards Edom? Well, we know from the testimony of scripture that it was certainly due to their wickedness and their sin. They, if you remember back in Numbers 20, he was angry for Edom for not letting Israel pass through in the wilderness when Moses was leading them through. He was mad at Edom for that. We see the judgments of other prophets, like in Ezekiel, in, in uh, Ezekiel 25, he promised to lay his vengeance upon them because they had acted revengefully against the house of Judah. Obadiah said the same thing. They're gonna be laid waste. So God was certainly punishing Edom for their wickedness. That's one reason. But, but above that, above all that, was God's initial choice right at the beginning, to choose Jacob, to set his love on that nation that would come from him and then not choose Esau. Again, it's as if God is saying to his people Israel, look again at the difference between you and Edom. The only reason you will have a different outcome is because of my mercy upon you. Think about it, Israel was not exactly a model nation. They were not exactly following God's ways and laws. They were just sent into exile some hundred years before this. They had, both nations had violated God's commands. In some ways, Israel was more guilty because God had graciously given them his law. But I have treated you differently, Israel, God says, not because of anything you have done but because I chose you and I loved you and I've made my covenant with you. 
So God wants his people to realize that his choice to love them has meant their undeserved favor as a nation. It's above all other nations. And by implication, he wants us as his new covenant people to know the same thing as well. Because as we talked about earlier, it is so easy, is it not, to doubt God's love for us when our circumstances are not favorable, when life is less than desirable, when evil seems to be winning, when cancer is the diagnosis, when the loved one has died, when the relationship is severed. But to prove to you that he loves you, God wants you not to rely on passing feelings or on your present circumstances. His love is so much deeper than that. His love never wavers, it never fails, never changes. And through the gospel, God shows us his love towards us by first showing us what we deserve and then by revealing his mercy. And that enables us to see his love all the more clearly. So what do we deserve? Well, God's word and the testimony of God's word shows us throughout that we all deserve Edom's fate. We deserve destruction. We deserve to be cut off. We deserve not to be given a second chance, not to get a chance at redemption. But the good news of the gospel is that God has provided a way of escape He has sent Jesus, his only son, to be the faithful Israelite, the covenant keeper, the one who never failed in all of God's commands. He always pleased God in all that he did. And this covenant keeper went to the cross for you and for me. He did it out of his love for us. And if we believe in Jesus, if we believe that he has died on the cross in our place and risen from the dead, we confess our sins and turn to him in faith, we will not have the fate of Edom, but we will have eternal life. We will have favor with God. And and many of us have done that and put our trust in Christ. But if there's someone here this morning who has not done that, let today be the day that you believe because we are all destined for Edom's fate apart from Jesus Christ. So put your hope and trust in Jesus. But just like Israel could not take for credit God's uh, love and his favor resting upon them, so also those of us who do trust in Jesus, we cannot take credit for our salvation. It is all because of God's grace and mercy Just as God chose Jacob before he was born, so scripture tells us that God chose us, those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus, before the foundation of the world, not because of anything we had done, but because of his own mercy and grace for the sake of his glory. And that's a hard concept for 21st century Western Christians to get our head around on. This passage in Malachi is one of many that points us towards a very important doctrine in scripture, which we see in seed form here 
and then is full-blown and full-grown in the New Testament, and that's the doctrine of election. So in Romans 9, Paul is talking about this passage in the passage in Genesis, and he says the reason that Jacob was chosen over Esau was, quote, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. You see, throughout history, God has chosen or elected certain people to bless for his own purposes, will, and glory. We see the progression of this doctrine starting, well, first before the beginning of time as God made this choice in the mind of God. But it's then seen in the calling of Abraham, who he called, out of all the nations of the earth, he called Abraham to be a great nation. And then, we remember, he, he called Isaac. Remember, not Ishmael, but Isaac. And now Jacob, not Esau, his brother. And then the entire nation of Israel. And now this doctrine finds its full fulfillment in those of us who are chosen by God to receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. The great theologian, Dr. Wayne Grudem, he says in his book, Systematic Theology, that election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his own sovereign and good pleasure. So in this passage in Malachi, God is revealing this principle of election, again in seed form, through the nation of Israel. Not necessarily talking about the salvation of Israel, but their deliverance of a nation. It will culminate, though, and this principle will find its fulfillment in those who are chosen by God to receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. So God intends Israel to see his electing, unconditional love through his wrath poured out on Edom. How difficult is that for us to comprehend? it leads us to revisit the natural question of how Edom's punishment is fair. How's that fair that God is punishing Edom? Because in this passage, God is showing there's no chance for Edom. Even if he attempts to rebuild, God says in verse four, he will tear it down. He's the Lord of hosts. He will fight against Israel's enemies. So why will the Lord be angry with him forever? That's a question that we need to ask and answer because it goes against our natural sense of fairness and justice how can God choose to bless some and save some like Israel and while reserving others for his wrath and his judgment like Edom well three things that I would want to say about that first we need to realize that the way God treats Edom is just and fair it is what they deserve. And by implication, if we are subject to his wrath, when we sin, it is just and fair for a holy God to carry out that wrath. It wasn't fair, so we would say, that God didn't give the angels a second chance. But it is fair. Second Peter says, we learned that God didn't give the angels a second chance when they sinned. He's given us a second chance. He didn't give the angels a second chance. And when we sin against God, that's what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. 
But God doesn't take pleasure in this. We learn in Ezekiel 33 that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they might repent and turn from his evil way and live. But the question really needs to be put on its head. Not why does God destine some to be uh, judged or, or not be saved, but we need to ask the opposite question. Why does God choose to save any? It's only because of his abundant grace and his amazing mercy. None of us deserve salvation from the Lord. So first, we need to remember that this is just, and when we think about judgment in the Bible, the blame is always placed on those who have sinned against the holy God, not on God's, uh, it's not, the blame's not placed on him. So second, we need to remember that we serve a holy God. We serve a God of justice. You see, when the Lord looks around at our world, he's not turning a blind eye when the wicked prosper. There will be a day of reckoning. If not here on earth, then on the judgment day. And then third, and maybe most importantly, we need to remember that God is God and we are not. So if we go to the passage in Romans 9, God's people are asking the same question. Well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul says there, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So friends, our, our job is not to question God in these matters. It's quite the other way around. We answer to him. And as we think about these secret counsels of God in election. Our job is not to figure out the counsel of God, the secret things of God that have remained hidden. Our job is to respond to Jesus' offer of salvation. We don't need to figure out, am I elect or am I not elect? God invites us to respond to the gospel. That is our job. This example of God's wrath against Edom versus his treatment of Israel is humbling. It, it, it makes us feel less in control. But once again, it leads us to this fact that God, to God alone, belongs the glory for our salvation. What did you contribute to your salvation? Nothing. Nothing. And that leads us into our final point from verse 5. So after remembering God's love through his word and remembering his love through his wrath, verse five leads us to praise God's greatness, which is on display through his love and his wrath. You see, when, God, uh, when Israel contemplates their own situation in light of God's destruction of Edom, it will lead them to glorify God. So look at verse five. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. 
You see, Israel was tempted to believe that God had forgotten them, that his justice had run dry, that the evil was winning, that his promises had failed, that the wicked were prospering while they were suffering. But God says that just as Israel witnesses the destruction of their bitter enemy, you know, Edom was always an enemy of Israel throughout its history. And at this point in history, Edom had kind of creeped into Israel, most likely, and had gone into their territory and was occupying some of their land. They were a bitter enemy. And he says, when you see this, when you see this neighboring country of Edom destroyed by me, you will realize that I am much bigger than you ever imagined, that I am in control, that I am the God, not only of Israel, but of all the nations. So witnessing God's justice will lead to their praise of God. And the same is true for us today. As hard as it is for us to comprehend at times why God seems to let evil go unchecked, we need to rest in this fact that God gets glory through his wrath and through his love. He gets glory through his wrath as he shows his justice and righteous vengeance And he gets glory through his love by his grace and mercy that is just poured out so freely to us. Once again, Romans 9 helps us here, starting in verse 22. It says this, what if God, it's kind of a question, but it's assumed true for the sake of argument. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory, even us to whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So here we see that the mind of God is so far above our comprehension. His ways are not our ways. He's saying his wrath makes his glory known to us who are his vessels of mercy. We can't see it now, but when we are in heaven one day, we will see his glory as we see his wrath as compared to the mercy that he has shown us. When we see what we deserve, what we really deserve, and what we, when we see that he has rescued us from that, that will give him ultimate glory and honor and praise. So friends, don't be deceived. God is not asleep at the wheel at this time in history. He will punish the wicked and the evildoers of this world. His judgment is coming. And that's why if you don't know the Lord Jesus yet, the time now is to repent is now. It's not tomorrow. It's not the next day. The time now is to repent. And when we see that judgment happen, whether it's on earth or when we're in heaven, we will glorify God and declare his greatness, realizing in an even greater way that we really deserve his wrath and we will praise him for the beauty of his love and mercy. So how do we uh, apply a passage like this? <laughs> wow. Well, it's not, a, it's not a passage that we apply in the traditional sense of the word. Instead, it's a passage that really reorients us. It reorients us, our place between us and God, our view of who God is. 
So maybe, by way of application, this week you need to reconsider how you are currently thinking about the God that you serve. Perhaps you've fallen into this false thinking that says that God is answerable to you for the circumstances you're facing. Or that God exists to serve you. Or that God has to justify himself to you for your current circumstances. Or that God must act as you expect him to. Friends, this passage reorients us and says, no, God is God. And we need to honor him as he has revealed himself and give him the praise and glory. We serve a mighty God. We serve a God who cannot be manipulated. He cannot be controlled. He is in charge of this world and he is in sovereign over every detail of your life. So let him reshape your understanding of who he is this week through his word in Malachi. Let it humble us and let it cause us to praise him. How do we know that God loves us? We know it because he has provided salvation through his son. It's undeserved mercy. It's boundless grace he has offered to us. And for those of us who believe, he will never let us go. He will never let us go. It doesn't matter the circumstance of your life. If you know and love Jesus Christ, if you can say that right now, you can have ultimate confidence that you are his. He will never let you go. The Apostle Paul captured it perfectly in Romans 11, and we'll close with this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, when we come to passages like this, we are brought low as you are lifted high. We are reminded that salvation comes from you. And although there's much mystery, Lord, you have revealed yourself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are so grateful that you have provided a way to receive that grace and mercy. We ask, Lord, help us to think of you rightly, to think of you as you are on your throne, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And Lord, help us to trust you as we uh, trust in what Christ has done for us. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.